You know, Michelangelo is one of the greatest sculptors the world has ever seen, a true master. And later on in his career, um, a hunk of marble was delivered to his studio. And with it came a bunch of nobles who wanted to see what is Michelangelo going to carve out of this stone? Huge, massive chunk. They were shocked when it was brought in and there it was put in the middle and they kind of all stepped back and the master stepped forward and everybody got quiet as he circled the big stone. He walked around it once and he, he touched all the sides of it. He even smelled it. And all the nobles were wondering, what is he seeing? What's he thinking? What's he doing? They were hoping for something exciting to happen. But soon it became clear that Michelangelo was just going to stand there and inspect. And then he stopped in front of it and didn't move for a long time, just peering what they thought was at the stone. Well, people became restless as he just stood there silently. Finally, one of the bolder nobles who could take it no longer asked, excuse me, sir, uh, what exactly are you looking at? I mean, this is just a piece of, just a piece of rock, with all due respect. And Michelangelo didn't turn, and here's what he said. You see a rock. I see an angel in this marble, and I will carve it until I set it free. He says, every block of stone has a statue inside of it if you know what you're looking for. You see, people around had the physical sight needed to see a stone, to see a rock. But one of them was a master who had an insightful vision to see the statue that was inside. Michelangelo had vision, a picture of what could be. And today we're going to talk about vision. Now, we're not going to talk about our physical sight, and we're not even going to talk about the orchard vision of love God and love people. That's our DNA. That's our heartbeat. But we're talking about this vision of seeing what could be. Aristotle says this, the soul never thinks without a picture. And a vision is a picture of what could be as you see it. A vision calls you to see yourself as who you could become, not just who you are. A vision asks you to see your children as the adults they could be and aim for that, not just the children they are today. A vision says your calling is greater than your career. Don't confuse them. A vision asks, what kind of man, what kind of woman do you want to be in 10 years? Vision dreams ahead of us. What would the orchard look like in the next decade? Vision is a glimpse ahead. It's a picture of what's ahead. And the crazy part is, if you have a vision for the future, it changes how you interpret and interact in the present. A future vision changes your present. And here's an example. There was a journeyman traveling across the land, and he came across three workers who were working with rocks. And he said, what are you guys doing? And the first one said, I'm just picking up stones and moving them from one place to the next. The second one said, just trying to make a living. And the third one picked up a rock and said, I am building a beautiful cathedral. You see, he, one had a vision for what could be and it changed even the smallest, ta the smallest task of what was. Future vision changes your present reality. 
One person is moving rocks while another is building a cathedral. One person claims to be a Christian while another is being transformed by following Jesus. One person is going to their job while the other is going out to take love and redemption to the world around them. Daily issues that seem like routine can have purpose and power if there's vision. Vision changes things. Vision is powerful. In fact, vision brings clarity. This is who I want to be, and that is where I'm going. Vision gives clarity. Vision also gives calling. This is what I am living for. This is my why. Vision kills complacency. This is too important for me to stay in my comfort zone. And vision grows courage. I see the cost and I'm willing to pay it. Vision changes everything. And this summer series we're going to look at is on the the book of Nehemiah, which is about rubble and stone and building and vision. And we're going to look ahead, Orchard, to see who we can be. We're going to ask God to show us how he sees us in the future, how he sees us individually and as a church. We're going to look ahead and get a picture of the orchard because while some just have the physical sight to see a church service Some will have the vision to see that we are a people getting power and purpose to step into calling, to change things, to be catalysts. We're going to find out that with there's an an ordinary exterior, but within that is an extraordinary calling from our God. And he calls us to love God and love people and take it to the world and the region and our cities and our cul-de-sacs and our our offices and, and our homes. And most importantly, what he looks forward to is seeing the change in your heart. So we go to the book of Nehemiah, the Old Testament book. A story of a, a person who had a vision, a calling of what could be. Nehemiah calls us out of comfort. He calls to those of us who are going through our life comfortably without making making much of an impact. And he says, you can be a catalyst for change. God wants to change in you and through you. All throughout the Bible, all throughout history is the story of a God who looks for people willing to, to risk and step out and step up, to face giants, to see waters parted, to stand in a fiery furnace, to to sit with lions, and to have the courage to follow a revolutionary teacher wherever he would take them. He's looking for people like that, who with calling and conviction say yes to a vision of what could be. And so with Nehemiah, let me give you a little background. It is the last historical book of the Old Testament. Now, Malachi is the last prophetic, but this is the last historical book of giving us account of what things, how things happen. Now, a little bit of background. 140 years before Nehemiah, the people of God turned their back on God and began to worship idols. And he sent prophets to tell them, turn back to me, get rid of your idols, stop your idol worship and come back. But they did not listen. And the Babylonians came in and captured everything and tore down the temple executed important leaders they put the defenses of every city in rubble and they got the the best and the brightest of the youth of this entire nation and and kidnapped them to captivity and that's the story of daniel and shadrach and meshach and abednego and so we have this captivity but god said after 70 years you'll come back to me you'll repent and i'll bring you back to your land And sure enough, a Persian king comes and defeats the Babylonians and he looks around and he sees all these displaced foreigners and he sends them back to Israel, back to their homeland. 
And so these captives are free physically, but captives and broken in spirit. For 90 years, they trickle back to Israel, but they have no vision, no plan, and no leader, no wall, no defenses, no temple. These were God's chosen people through Abraham. They used to be a proud nation, knowing their worth, devoted to worship of God, secure in their, their identity as his people, but now we find them with, with no identity. It's been taken from them. And they, they kind of built a temple and tried to build a life, but things were in shambles, and rubble was the greatest commodity as a nation. That's what they had was rubble. Without defenses in those days, it's not really worth investing in building up your life because it will be taken from you at some point. So we find these people whose, whose past was rubble, whose present is rubble, whose, whose heart's rubble, whose, whose future looks like rubble. Enter Nehemiah. We find him as the cupbearer of this Persian king. The cupbearer tests for poison. He's one of the most trusted officials in the kingdom. He's the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. We assume that Nehemiah has never been to his homeland. He was taken captive and raised there. Nehemiah 1, verses, verse 1. These are the words of Nehemiah. This is his account. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Israel with some other men. And I questioned them about God's people and the, re- the remnant that had survived the exile and about the condition of Jerusalem, our capital. And they told me, those who survive the exile are back home in the province. They're in great trouble and in disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been burned with fire. The wall of the capital is in rubble and the gates are ashes. In ancient times, the wall was the practical defense against marauders and tribes and pillagers. There were no jets or rockets or anything to to blast over or go over or any of that stuff. That was what they had. And so without a wall of these, these ancient cities, any tribe, any marauders could have just come in and plundered any temple they had. Without a wall, the family couldn't sleep at night. Businesses couldn't sleep at night out of fear that everything they had would be taken from them, be put in slavery and wreck their livelihood. A city in those days, in that time, with no wall was a mess and just waiting for trouble. And it says that the, the survivors who were there were in great trouble. And the word trouble there is in danger. They're exposed. They're exposed to danger. And the word disgrace means they're in shame. So the God's people who returned, they live exposed to danger and they lived in shame. Now for some of us, this, this describes our past. This describes our present. That there have been great things in our life that have just been turned to rubble. And we are exposed, our defense is broken, our will's broken, and we live in shame. Nehemiah hears this account. But just a reminder, Nehemiah's good. He's the most trusted servant of the king. He lives in the lap of luxury. His walls, his bank account, his life, secure. But when he hears of a broken people and a broken home, listen to his response in verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Nehemiah has his heart broken by this news. And it's not, he's not heartbroken because it's in rubble. It was in rubble before that. I mean, they're in better condition now that they're free than before in captivity, right? What's, why is his heart breaking? What's going on here? Well, Nehemiah experiences something in this moment that I pray each of us gets to experience this week. You see, 
Nehemiah's heart is moved by what moves God's heart. The thing that consumes God's heart begins to consume his heart. This isn't always the case, is it? If we look at our lives and my life, most often our hearts are consumed with the concerns of our own life. But there are these sacred, holy moments when the things that move God's heart begin to move our heart. And the things that break his heart break our heart. And Orchard, I just have a question right here to pull aside. When was the last time your heart was concerned with the things that concern the heart of God? When was the last time your heart broke for what breaks his heart? When was the last time you were consumed by the things that consume the heart of our God? Nehemiah could have heard this news and given a sigh. Oh, that's just bad news. I don't know what to do about that. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an entire nation away. I, I have a career. I have important things to do. But, but, but this strikes Nehemiah in a place much deeper than career. Nehemiah begins to be consumed by a call. Nehemiah's heart begins to beat with God's as he is broken and moved. And so he says in Nehemiah 1 verses 4, I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Now, now how would you respond to such news? After you're done crying, what do you do? What's the plan of action, right? If you're, I mean, if you're gonna do something, what do you do? You know, in today's culture, we like to click if we wanna do something. Our hearts are moved on social media, so we, we click. It's activism on, so, activism on social media is clicktivism. Now, perhaps some of us were moved beyond that to give money. And perhaps a few of us decided we would volunteer or, or, or go do something. And maybe just a couple of people said, I can't, I can't not give my life to this. It's rare. Nehemiah sees the current condition of God's people. He sees their loss and shame. And, and what's the first thing Nehemiah should do? Click like? Let people know that he's interested? How about give some money? How about immediately just get down with a whiteboard and start strategizing? How about call some architects and get a mock-up? What could the wall look like? We got, we got to get things going here. We got to do something. Should he start recruiting leaders? I mean, what should he do? What does he do? His heart breaks for what breaks God's heart, and we see his response, and this response is the thing that actually creates true and lasting change. Nehemiah's response is a catalyst. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept, and for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah was moved by a cause much greater, much bigger than himself, and because he, he could not accomplish it, he cried out. You see, when, when you see a cause that you can't accomplish, you call on the one who can accomplish all things. When you're carrying a burden of pain that becomes unbearable, you call on the one who can bear all things. When you have a calling for something that you know in your humanity you cannot complete, you call out to the one who's the completer of all things. And people will say, oh, you've got to do more than thoughts and prayers, and they're right. You don't stop with prayers, but you start there. Nehemiah saw a grand calling. It struck him. 
and he prayed. Nehemiah knows that for God's purposes to be completed, a power greater than himself must be present. And then from verses five to 11, you should read it some other time, it's a beautiful prayer as he repents and he, it's authentic, he, he confesses sin for the nation. He reminds God of God's promises and then he asks something very interesting. Quote, God, would you go with me and grant me favor? Would you go with me and grant me favor? Orchard, why would you ask for favor? You only need favor if you're planning to move forward. Nehemiah has a, he's broken. He's, he gets a calling. He gets consumed. And then he's going to go and do something. You only need favor if you're moving forward. He asks because he's about to take a risk. Which is so wild because Nehemiah has it so easy. He could have literally just sat there in his comfort zone in the palace and let somebody else deal with it. But Orchard, hear me on this. This is very important. Comfort zones may be familiar, but they're not healthy. Comfort zones may be familiar, but they're not healthy. Your true growth begins at the end of your comfort zone. Comfort and growth cannot coexist. If something doesn't challenge you, it won't change you. Our comfort zones may be familiar and cozy, but there's no change there. If you don't purposely step into challenge, we'll never need the change. You see, in a comfort zone, you don't need favor. You don't ask for favor, you ask for familiar. In comfort zones, you listen to the voice of safety, not the whisper of the Spirit. In comfort zones, you, you don't want calling, you just want more cushions. We insulate our lives from risk, and in doing so, we shield our spiritual lives from moving into maturity, no growth. And spiritually, if we choose comfort zones, we can remain the same for decades. And not here, but there are churches across America full of people who have never stepped out of the comfort zone of faith. And they thought this was the end game. And they haven't been challenged. And they've never stepped out. And so we've never had to grow. God's calling us to move forward. God's calling us as a church, Orchard, to be a church, that, a church that risks. He whispers to your heart today, will you risk with me? Are you willing to leave your comfort zone behind? You see, Nehemiah gets a divine perspective that invites him into a life that needs favor to move forward. It needs favor instead of familiar. It seeks challenge instead of comfort. Nehemiah wants to make a real difference, not just remain really indifferent. He wants to th see things happen. And so Nehemiah, right here, makes one of the most important trades a human could ever make as he lays down comfort and he picks up calling. He, he trades the ordinary for audacity. He exits the routine and manageable and comfortable surroundings for that exhilarating, crisp air of stepping into a divine calling.
He trades in a life plan that is settled and safe on paper for a life that dares travel off the edge of the known map. You see, Orchard, we have a divine calling ahead of us. Nehemiah was called to go rebuild the rubble of his home, but God is calling us to build redemption and love into our cities and schools and homes and hearts. He's calling us to to build redemption and love God and love people in such a way that goes beyond normal church. He's calling us to love God and love people in such a powerful way that everything we do points like a spotlight to Jesus. The main thing, above all things, God has a big vision for us. He's inviting each of us to orchard to step out and trade our comfort for calling. He's calling us to, to stop putting our businesses or ourselves or our recreation or our spouse or even our kids first. And he's asking to be made first and foremost in our life. But you know why? Because the greatest thing an orchard parent could pass on to an orchard kid is they get to witness their mom and witness their dad risking for God and sacrificing to follow Jesus, not just sacrificing for their hobbies. A wife wants to be inspired by a husband that risks to follow God and loves her with the love that is rooted in Jesus and fights for what is right. A husband with a wife that, and he knows that she loves God more than him, can rest knowing that she is secure and resourced and empowered by God. And what is more beautiful than that? Businesses need bosses and employees who sell out to God's plan and make decisions out of wisdom and integrity. Listen, the calling that God has on us, his people, is to bring love and redemption to the world. Because there's broken people out there. Because we're broken people. Because there's people with broken and shameful pasts. Because we have broken and shameful pasts. Because there's a rubble out there of addiction and affliction. And God's calling us to be agents of redemption, to step in where we have found hope, found forgiveness, found calling, and point to Jesus, the main thing. Because the work of Jesus we carry on a holy mission. I want to just tell you something. Jesus didn't die to get us into heaven. He died to get heaven into us so we could take it out of these walls. We have a holy mission. We have a divine calling. We have a colossal consuming vision ahead of us if we are willing to trade comfort Jesus didn't resurrect just so that we could sit in church. He resurrected so we could be the church and bring redemption to this world. Amen? The final words of Jesus weren't this. Go about your lives and make them as safe as possible and find a niche for yourself and above all, work and aim to be happy and I'll see you at the end. It's not what he said. Here's what he said in Matthew. God has authorized me to send you. Go out, orchard, and proclaim the message to everyone you meet, near and far. Make followers wherever you go, marking them by baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them in all the ways I've commanded you. And as you do this, I'll be with you as you do this, day after day after day, right up to the end. You see, we've been given a divine calling. For those of us who say we, we follow Jesus, we've been given a calling. We've been given a, a commission. The question is, have we traded that for comfort? 
The calling is challenging and the mission is huge and the risk scary, but the prize is the promise that God goes with us and in us and that at the end of it all, we get to fall into his arms. Nehemiah was given a grand vision, a vision for what could be, a vision of redemption for all that was rubble around him. Nehemiah looks at rubble and gets a glimpse of what could be. There's a need for change. There's a need for awakening. There's a need for revival. There's a need for rebuilding and redemption. And the first thing Nehemiah does with all these things to do is pray. Why does he pray first? Because you see, prayer is the genesis of awakening. Prayer is the foundation of rebuilding. Prayer is asking God to do what you know you cannot do. And Nehemiah knows that what the calling is ahead of him is so big and so large, he needs God and he prays desperately. Orchard, I want to tell you this, the size of our prayers reveal two things about us. The size of our prayers, first of all, reveals the size of our faith. Small prayers don't require big faith. Small faith, small prayers. The size of our prayers also reveals the size of our God. You see, for many of us, the size of our daily prayer only requires a God big enough to bless our food. And for others of us, our biggest prayer is safe travels. And so we only need a God the size of an all-wheel drive Subaru to protect us. Big prayers require a big God. And when we don't pray big prayers, it reveals our small faith in a small, human-made version of God. Orchard, what big prayers are you, are you praying right now? What, what prayers do you have in your life that you know you can't accomplish, you can't do it? Orchard, do you have any prayers right now in your heart that are so big that you're embarrassed to verbalize them to another person? Like, how big are your prayers? How big is your faith? How big is our God? I always wonder if God, and this isn't in the Bible, if God sits in heaven and he sees these prayers coming through, like, bless the food, bless the food, hedge of protection, travel mercies, heal the cold, okay? And then all of a sudden, a prayer comes before him. Oh. And he leans forward because this prayer has something in it that he loves. Audacity. Someone just prayed with audacity, had the nerve to ask for something bigger than they knew how big it was. Orchard, God is going to reveal to us an audacious vision for what could be in our personal lives and our lives as a church as a whole. Because without audacious vision, there's no need, no need for audacious prayer if there's no audacious vision. The size of our prayers reveal the size of our audacity for God. And you, have you noticed how when something comes your way through life that is bigger than you, that, that just frightens you, that scares you, you pray differently? Have you noticed that? The urgency that you pray with, the desperation you pray with? We don't have to wait for emergencies to pray that way. We could pray for redemption that way, with that urgency. Almost as if people's eternities and lives are on the line. Almost. That kind of urgency. Our future will be audacious, an audacious vision. 
and I, and I plan to lead us out in prayer. A big vision requires big prayers, and big prayers are asked through a big God so we can see something beautiful and larger than ourselves happen, and prayer is the first step. And, and in the past three years, just very privately, I have been studying something. I, I've been a student of revival. I've read the, these book about revivals. I've read the journals of revivalists, and a theme is throughout every, every journal, every diary, every book, every biography, and we see it in Nehemiah over and over. And here it is. Revival was always preceded by audacious and united prayer. Where there was no prayer, there was no revival. Revival is, revival is a word for a spiritual awakening, a redemptive movement. There's never been one where, where there wasn't intense and united prayer. And so people have been asking me all month, all week, what are you going to change? What are you going to change? And that's why we had some fun earlier. What are you going to change? And here's just the first thing, the only thing that I see right now that, that, that just needs to happen. is intense and united, audacious prayer that God bring revival. And I know this won't work for some of your schedules, but I'm just going to do it. Wednesday, every Wednesday at noon, I'm going to meet right here in this room. And I told the staff, I'll never take role. No one's required to be here. It might be just Amy and I. That's okay. But I'm going to meet every Wednesday here at noon and audaciously pray for awakening in our people, in our hearts, in our community. I'm going to pray so big it's going to be scary. Because I believe God can do something here unique. So I'm going to ask you to step in and join me if you can make it. If you can't make it on Wednesday at noon, you can pray wherever you are Wednesday at noon. But also give something to our church. There's a lot of you out there who have needs you need prayed for, or you want prayed for, or you know somebody who's going through something who, who needs prayer. You now have a place and a time to bring them. Come here, we'll pray for awakening, and then we'll take a second to pray for those in need. Pray over them. That God would move. Nehemiah was moved by God and had a glimpse of a future vision. And my hope is in the coming weeks of this series, we all catch a glimpse of the future vision. Listen, Orchard, did you know God has a vision for you personally? How, how he wants you to, to grow and become. And also catch a glimpse of how he's gonna grow us corporately. Nehemiah wanted to move forward, so he asked for favor. He left comfort for calling. And I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you this week that as God calls you, you step out of your comfort zone. That you step out of the shire of your spiritual faith and set out on something new where yours growth. There's never been revival without united prayer and I am hoping and praying that God brings awakening and revival to our lives, our marriages, our children, our cities, our addictions, our brokenness and that we see our people and cities transformed and I vow to be on the front lines of this audacious praying. Victor Hugo said, there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. And Orchard, I think our time has come. I think God might just want us to get serious about what we say we're serious about. And to step forward and be counted as the faithful who leave the comfort zone for calling. As we go into communion, I want to remind you this is an open table, no class needed. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So you're welcome. And as you get the elements, the symbols of his body and blood, you are holding the symbols of the most audacious rescue love plan ever. 
This is, this is the extent, the links that God would go to free you, to free the world. And as you sit there with that cup and piece of audacity, know that he's asking us to step forward in an audacious way too. Amen? Let's worship.